The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I am really glad that you are worshiping with us today. Welcome to Heritage Christian Fellowship. My name is Paul, and you know, I haven't said this in a while, but I try, every week I try to be uh, like visible and present. I would love to, if I haven't had a conversation with you, or, or if I haven't shaken your hand, or if we've not been formally introduced, or if I look at you blankly and we have talked before, just remind me of who you are. But I would love to, I just want to, I want to meet you, want to get to know you, and so know that after the service, I try to bolt as quick as I can out in the lobby to make myself available, just so I can shake hands and, and say hi and greet you. I'd love to know you if you're, if you're checking us out, or if you're considering making Heritage your home, I'd love to, to shake your hand and get to know a little bit about you. So find me after the service. You know, uh, we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark. Man, we are almost done. We have three weeks left, and we're going to wrap up teaching through this book. We started it back in September. And I was meeting with a friend this week, and he reminded me of this. If you go to the very first chapter of Mark, it it begins by talking about how John the Baptist is going to prepare a way for Jesus. And there's this this prophet, uh, this quote from the prophet Isaiah that's given in reference to the ministry of John the Baptist. And here's how Here's how the Gospel of Mark begins. In the beginning, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And that was John the Baptist's ministry. He was a precursor to Christ. He prepared the way. And when you read this at the beginning of Mark's gospel, when you read that the ministry of of John the Baptist is to prepare the way for the Lord and make his paths straight, and you know you're reading a book about the Son of God, about God's activity in humankind through his Son, would you imagine that this straight path of Jesus would lead through the cross? I mean, and that's what my friend reminded me of this week. He's like, would you imagine, like what we've read the last couple of weeks, the Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus falls on his face in the presence of his friends and his sweat is become, becomes his blood and he's agonizing before the Father. The scriptures tell us it's the Father's will to crush his son. And here's Jesus in the garden agonizing before the Father saying, Father, take this cup of suffering from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Would you imagine that that is the straight path of Jesus? the Savior of the world, to go right to the cross. It's just so counterintuitive to how we think about power and the king of the universe. And here we are in our passage today. We are in the centerpiece of of the the trial or the afflictions of Jesus. We are at the end of Mark's gospel. We, We watched last week the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw the sorrow of Jesus in that garden. We heard the command of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to his disciples. We saw the obedience of Jesus to rise up and to step toward the cross, not away from it. We watched that last week as as it went from uh, the beginning of our text last week was Jesus singing hymns with his disciples in the upper room in the security and safety of intimate fellowship over a meal, and it ended with him in custody, being led away against his will. Well, really not against his will, seemingly against his will, but in line with the will of the Father. And so today we're going to look at chapter 14, beginning in verse 53, and we're going to read through a little bit of chapter 15. So I encourage you, if you brought a Bible today, uh, to open it up to Mark 14. Let me pray, and then we will get into the text. Father, I'm thankful for the men and for the women that you have gathered in our place today. God, I I do ask, God, as we we sit here under the authority of your word, God, as as we hear your word preached, God, would you help me get out of the way? 
my, my, my fast talking, my stuttering, all the, all the, the, the foibles and the, and the weaknesses that I bear. God, get me out of the way. And by your spirit, God, would you speak through your word today, God? By your spirit, would you open up blinded eyes and would you soften hearts that have grown hard? God, would you enliven faith that has grown dull? Would you draw men and women to yourself? Would you bring confession, confession to our lips and repentance to our feet that we, would, that we would confess and repent and turn our face back to you, Lord? Have your way with us as we study this word. God, we invite you to meet us here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we all love uh, the drama of a good trial. There's a reason why true crime and court TV and court cam are, are all the rave. Like people love uh, kind of watching those television shows. And if you are of my generation, it seems like every generation has a high-profile court case that everyone pays attention to. I'm, I'm Gen X, so my generation, it was the O.J. Simpson trial. I remember in college, as the whole nation watched in baited anticipation as this trial went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. I remember Judge Ito and was it Cato Kalin and all these unique characters. And I remember Johnny Cochran at the end saying, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. It was theater. It was incredible. And everybody watched and with baited anticipation to see what was going to happen. Uh, but there was real lives that were involved and there was real consequences to the things that transpired. Now this generation, my, my kids, the, the trial of the century is Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. How sad of a commentary on our culture. I mean, it's, it's like, was that trial was unfolding? I got to admit, I got, I got caught up in it. I did. I, got, I can't lie. I watched the, the, you know, the talk news uh, fodder about the trial. But, you know, it's just crazy to me that there's a war in Ukraine. There's record-breaking inflation. There's mass shootings. There's the Giselle Maxwell trial. There's political tensions. And yet what led the news night after night after night was Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. There's something about a courtroom trial that captivates us. There's something about that, the courtroom drama. I mean, we grew up watching Matlock, and every, every generation has, and there's something about this that just kind of captivates our attention. Well, the interesting thing about our passage today is the passage is the entirety of the trial of Jesus Christ. There's never been a more significant trial in all of human history. There's never been a more significant moment in all of human history, and it's filled with all sorts of drama. We have an innocent man who's been unjustly charged, who's in custody. We've got corruption at the highest levels working against this innocent man who is a carpenter from a no-name town. We've got people buckling under pressure. We've got guilty people being set free, innocent being people being condemned to death. We've got high-ranking officials who are clueless. We've got corruption and scandal and secrecy. It is a captivating story, and it's also historical truth actually happened. And there are real consequences to the implications of the trial of Jesus. It's the most significant trial to ever happen. And the theological backdrop of this trial is this, because we're going to look today at all these different people that were playing different roles and different parts in the trial of Jesus, and it's, 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 uh, it's, it's captivating, it really is. And yet, we've got to recognize that the backdrop, the theological backdrop of the trial of Jesus is that the Father was never out of control. And it was always the Father's will. I mean, one of the things Jesus said in, in the last section of text that we preached in Mark 14, 49, is he's being arrested and led away right before his, uh, his disciples abandoned him. The last thing he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember in verse 49 of chapter 14, was he said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And so this was not a surprise to God. This, this, this unjust trial was not an offense or a surprise. Like, it was the will of the Father. And the Old Testament prophets tell us this. 
Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years before Jesus, this messianic prophecy speaks about the Messiah. It speaks about this trial, and it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put on him grief. And Jesus, even as he spoke of his disciples in, in uh, the upper room, as they were declaring their, their allegiance to Jesus, he, he said the, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter, Jesus said. He's quoting an Old Testament prophet, Zechariah. And in the prophecy that he is quoting, it's the, it's the father that will strike the shepherd. This, is the, this trial, this, this catastrophe, this injustice, all the things we're about to read is the will of the father. And we see Jesus rising up. He says, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And he steps toward the cross. So all these actors that we're going to see today, all these people, the, the religious leadership, abusive guards, the apostle Peter, Pontius Pilate, the, the crowds, Barabbas, they're all characters in the story that God is telling. So let's look at the trial of Jesus. This is what I'm going to do today. Is I'm going to read through and pause periodically as I just want us, rather than break this up in, in a bunch of different chunks, my thought was, let's just read through this text and kind of take our time and kind of point out things that we, we, that we need to see. But let's just kind of let the trial of Jesus unfold before us as we read the scriptures. Beginning in verse 53 of chapter 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right? into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Let's pause there for a sec. So after his arrest in Gethsemane, with these club and sword-wielding soldiers, Jesus is led to the high priest. At the time, the high priest was named Caiaphas. Uh, and he, he was uh, the leader of this, what Peter later calls this whole council. This is called the Sanhedrin in in Jerusalem at the time, in Israel at the time, there was a, a group of 70 men. It was the supreme court of ancient Israel, the Sanhedrin. And that's this whole council that, that Jesus is being led before. And the leader is the high priest Caiaphas himself. And, and, and Mark makes it a point to tell us in verse 53 that all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So it's very likely all 70 were there. If not all 70, at least a full quorum was present for this trial against Jesus. And after mentioning that Jesus is before the high priest in the council, we see in verse 54 that, that Mark jumps over and he, he mentions that Peter is present in this moment. And so he's drawing a contrast between Peter and between Jesus. I read this week that, that Mark contrasts the failure of one man, Peter, with the steadfastness of the Son of Man, Christ. And he does this with the original audience in mind. Now, the original audience who would have received Mark's gospel 2,000 years ago was the, was the early church in Rome. And the early church in Rome was experiencing backbreaking persecution. And so Christ does this. He contrasts the weakness of Peter and the steadfastness of Christ so that the early church would, find, would know what was necessary to succeed in an inhospitable world. And so they would have looked upon the resolve of Jesus in this trial. And they would have known what it takes to survive the many trials that they were experiencing at the hands of Rome. What an encouragement to the original audience. The strength and the resolve of Jesus would have been. Mark first, first mentions Peter here, and then for the next 11 verses, he talks about the, the kind of the, 
the religious trial of Jesus. And then we jump back to Peter. So there's this kind of sandwiching of the religious trial of Jesus with this discussion about Peter. And what, what does it say about Peter? It says that he's following Jesus at a distance. And so if you remember, he made this bold proclamation that he would never fall away, and then he falls away in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's as if Peter has mustered up a little bit more gumption, and as Jesus is being led, he steps back into the fray, and he begins to follow Jesus at a distance, trying to self-will himself to not fail and to not abandon Jesus in his time of greatest need. I read this week that apparently he could not bring himself to desert Jesus completely. So at a distance he follows, and eventually he finds himself in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, and there are some soldiers warming warming themselves around barrels. It was the springtime in Jerusalem. It was cool at night. And so Peter, great risk to himself, he steps up to a warming barrel, and, and the fire would have illuminated his face, and he's risking being found out. And somehow, some ways, he's gathered in the courtyard of the home of Caiaphas. He's able to peer through a window or see on some level this kangaroo court that is taking place for Jesus. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, and their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this... Their testimony did not agree. This trial was suspect from the very beginning. And though at first glance it may appear like it has all the trappings of a legal proceeding, it was wrought with legal problems. By the, by the, the, the legal standards the Sanhedrin held themselves to, it was wrought with problems. For example, it was not legal according to their own rules for the Sanhedrin to make judgments at night. And yet here they are, gathered in the cover of night, breaking their own rule. It wasn't legal for the Sanhedrin to meet outside of their their chambers in the temple. And yet here they are, meeting in the home of Caiaphas. How shady. And also, it was against their own law to try someone for a capital offense during the Passover. Yet here they are, in the midst of Passover, trying Jesus. Again, this was a kangaroo court. And you can just watch this. You can just imagine as this dark buzz begins to take over the city of Jerusalem. This darkness just spreads out as this gross, nasty thing is taking place in the midst of all this Passover activity. In order to convict someone of a capital offense, there needed to be two witnesses. And so we see these witnesses coming forward. Chances are they were probably paid off. And and, and they're trying to to make accusations against Jesus, but their testimony doesn't match up. It's hard to, to, to lie in concert. It's easier just to tell the truth, but they're lying. Eventually, someone accuses Jesus of threatening to tear down the temple, which would have been a big offense, but they're convoluting some of the teachings of Jesus. It doesn't match up. And so... At this point in the process, even with all these witnesses, they don't have a leg to stand on. And you can imagine that the chief priests were getting frustrated. Let's pick up in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and he made no answer. As these false allegations are flying back and forth, Jesus He remains silent. He doesn't dignify the slander with a response. And so Caiaphas is frustrated. So he's he's goading Jesus on. He's like, have you no answer to make? And the response of Jesus is silence. The prophet Isaiah talked about this in the prophecy he made about this moment some 700 years previous. Isaiah 53, verse 7. 
we read of Jesus, he was oppressed and was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before the shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. And here's Jesus, silent, in front of his accusers. Verse 61. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand, seated at the right hand of, of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So this was the bombshell moment. Caiaphas essentially asks two questions of Jesus. Are you the Messiah? And are you God? He wants to know if Jesus was the Messiah and if Jesus was God. And you know what? Up to this point in Mark's gospel for 14 and a half chapters, or 13 and a half chapters, there has been this, this effort uh, on Jesus' part to keep his identity secret. I had, a, I had a professor when I was at seminary who, who, who told me that in the first century, if someone would make a claim of messiahship, which happened quite often actually, because they hated Rome and they wanted a messiah to rise up and overthrow Rome, but my, my New Testament prophet said if someone made a, a claim of messiahship in the first century, their life expectancy was about three days. Because Rome would have none of it. They would squash that rebellion before it had a chance to start. So up to this point, Jesus has been keeping his identity secret. Tell no one, tell no one, tell no one. He's been veiled. They've tried to pull it out of him and they couldn't. But this, this is the moment where Jesus finally says exactly who he is. Caiaphas asks him, are you the Messiah? Are you God in the flesh? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This was both a confession of his deity, but also a terrible warning to those men that were present that day. It's an allusion to three different Old Testament passages about the return of Christ and the power of, of Christ. And it's allu by alluding to these Old Testament passages, one of the things Jesus is saying to the, the, the judge, Caiaphas, and those men who are judging him, Jesus is saying to them, you are the judge now, but I will return as the ultimate judge one day. These are the only words Jesus ever spoke. This one sentence in this whole kangaroo trial, this is the only words that Jesus spoke to his accusers, to the leadership of Israel. I mean, they've been squawking and speaking and plotting and scheming, words, words, words. When Jesus speaks, he chooses his words sparingly. And he says to them, you're judging me, but one day I will judge you. The author of Revelation speaks of this day. In Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. What a startling thing for Jesus to say to these men. Verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments, and he said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This was the evidence that these scheming men had been in search of. This, this man, in their mind, had dared to make claims of divinity. He had dared to claim that he was the Messiah, the promised one of God. And rather than consider that the claims of Christ are truth, they instead accuse him of blasphemy, which was a capital crime. And so Jesus now, in their minds, was deserving of death. No mere man claiming to be God would live. So Caiaphas tears his garments in theater. He is expressing his grief. He's also making a judicial decision. And then he looks to the Sanhedrin and these other 70 men. He's like, what do you guys say? They're like, kill him. Let's condemn him. He must die. 
And then all this pent-up frustration that these men had been feeling for years, months, and especially the last few days as Jesus had been in the city kind of confronting them, all their frustrations spill out. And it says that some of them began to spit on Jesus and to cover his face and to punch him. These are supposed to be the most dignified, the epitome of, of religious society in Jerusalem, and they're spitting on Jesus and punching him and hurling insults at him. And when they hand him over to the guards, they receive him with blows, the text says. So here's Jesus being spit upon and plunged and taunted. And they're unwittingly fulfilling another messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah. This is another way the scriptures are being fulfilled. Isaiah 50 verse 7, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. So this is Jesus fulfilling the scriptures before our very eyes. And so he's found guilty of the religious trial. He's sentenced to death. And so now there's this matter of a civil trial before Pilate. But first we have to go back to Peter. Mark wants us to see the failures of Peter here for some reason. Let's look at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Despite his best efforts, despite all of his internal strength, Despite all of his proud proclamations, Peter buckled under the pressure. And after that rooster crowed the second time, the grief was unbearable. The failure was crushing. And he broke down and he wept. The Gospel of Luke gives us a little bit more insight into this moment. The Gospel of Luke tells us that after Jesus invoked the curse and denied knowing Jesus, that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. So not only did Peter deny Christ in the moment that he denied him and did exactly the thing he said he would never do, he locked eyes with Jesus. And in his moment of greatest need, Peter abandoned him. And as the dawn fast approached, no doubt that rooster continued to crow. If you've ever had roosters, you know they don't just crow once. They start crowing at about 5 in the morning. They don't stop till 9. You want to wring their necks. And so imagine, I imagine Peter heartbroken, weeping, steeped with shame, Every time that, crow, that rooster crowed again, it was, like a, it was like a knife in his heart, reminding him of his failure and his shame. Very thankful, by the way, for the picture we have in John's gospel of Jesus coming to Peter after his resurrection and giving him a, telling Peter three times Peter has a chance to say, I love you, Lord. Of course I'll feed your sheep. We see the grace and the reinstitution of Peter in the way Christ loves him. And so then, having been found guilty of blasphemy in his religious trial, The Sanhedrin bring Jesus before Pilate in the civil portion of the trial beginning in in chapter 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. 
And they bound Jesus, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate. Now, you probably know, if you've been around the church, that Pilate was a Roman governor. He was a governor over that region. He normally lived in Caesarea, but he would come to Jerusalem for Passover because, like, there would be million-plus visitors, and his job was to keep the peace. And so these religious folks with Jesus condemned in their religious trial, guilty of a capital uh, offense, blasphemy, and, and deserving of death. They, they need the state of Rome. They need, they need the governor to endorse or to, or to also find Jesus guilty so that they can have permission to kill him. They couldn't just kill him willy-nilly. They were under Roman authority. And so they rush to, to Jerusalem, to the place where Pilate was staying, probably in Herod's palace, because he was in town for Passover. And they knock on his door early in the morning because that's when Pilate would hold trials, and they're desperate to get Jesus convicted. And that also, by the way, is why they probably held trial at night, so they could get to to Pilate first thing in the morning to accomplish this evil deed they had been scheming in their minds. And so Pilate opens the door to a bloodied Jesus and a group of hell-bent men desiring to kill him. Verse 2. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked again of him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. And so Pilate uh, was amazed. So having heard the case against Jesus from the high priest and the chief priests, Pilate, you know, and they they were making an argument that, that, now, now here's the deal. Pilate wasn't concerned with blasphemy. That wasn't his wheelhouse. So what if the Roman official or the Jewish officials found Jesus guilty of blasphemy? So what? I don't care about that. So, so the, these, these religious men, the, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, they had to make up some charges against Jesus that would get him condemned to death under Roman law. And so, they, so Luke tells us that there are three things they bring forward to accuse Jesus of in the presence of Pilate. Uh, in Luke 23, verse 2, they, they say to Pilate, We found this man misleading our nation forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar to not pay taxes and saying that he himself is Christ. And so what happens is the first two accusations fly over the head of Pilate. But this third accusation that Jesus is claiming to be king, that has significance in Pilate's mind. And that's why he refers to Jesus as the king of the Jews because this is the main accusation he's entertaining. Because in Rome, there was only one Caesar, only one king, only one leader, and any other claim of kingship would be considered an act of insurrection. And so Pilate asks him, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And there's this kind of veiled answer from Jesus. You've said so. Jesus seems to be saying, uh, yes, Pilate, I am the king of the Jews, but your concept of what it means to be king and my concept are miles apart. So upon Pilate's second question, Jesus, however, in his majestic serenity, as I read this week, he refused to defend himself. He says, you have said so. And then Pilate asks him another question, and there's Jesus again, silent before his accusers, fulfilling that prophecy in Isaiah. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. So evidently it was custom by Pilate during the Passover feast to release 
a, pri- a prisoner. And knowing this custom, evidently a crowd had gathered outside of the place where Pilate was going to be staying, and they were preparing to ask for Barabbas' release. Now, Barabbas, as it says in our text, he was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. And so, so he was likely a zealot, this political faction, this militarized faction of Judaism who hated Rome, and they were motivated by their hatred of Rome and their desire to overthrow Rome and declare independence. And so very likely, Barabbas was a zealot who had been part of an insurrection. And he ended up killing someone in the insurrection. And if you are a pro-Israel guy, he is going to be your guy. He's going to be like a figure, like a martyr, like a figurehead of what you stand for. He's a picture of the power you hope to have over your captors or over your occupiers. And so this crowd has gathered outside of Pilate's location, prepared to ask for the release of, of Barabbas. And, but here's Pilate, knowing that Jesus is innocent, I mean, he can look through the flimsy argument of these religious men. He knows political hacks when he sees them. He's been in politics his whole life. So he knows there's something not right about these accusations against Jesus. He knows these accusations are flimsy. And he knows that these chief priests are jealous of Jesus. And so he's trying to figure out a a path forward. How How do I appease this crowd and yet not get blood on my hands from executing an innocent man? And so they're begging for the release of Barabbas and and. Pilate's like, well, what about the king of the Jews? Let's substitute this. Sensing the tension, the chief priests are thinking, oh no, we've done all this working, all this plotting, we've literally sold our soul to the devil to get this man convicted and killed, and now we're at risk of losing. After all our plotting and scheming, after all of our lying and paying and everything, all the backdoor deals we have done to get to this point, it's not going to happen. And we read in beginning in verse 11 that the chief priests stirred up the crowds and they, they begged for the crowds to beg for the release of Barabbas instead. And so Pilate, hearing the, the crowds calling for the release of, of Barabbas in verse 12, Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And the crowd, now whipped into a frenzy, begins to cry out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? They don't want to answer the question. They just shout all the more, Crucify him. I just think of the death in the soul. I mean, if their souls weren't already dead enough. I mean, these were chief priests who had worked very hard to maintain the facade of moral religiosity. And they had done these backdoor deals with Judas behind closed doors, scheming to get Jesus arrested. They tried very hard to present themselves as holier than thou. But in this moment, in the heat of the moment, with an angry mob, and the fear of Jesus not being crucified, they go ahead and let their colors be shown. They begin to lobby the crowd to call for the head of Jesus in the release of Barabbas. And so on top of all that, we have Pilate here. Now Pilate's trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. I mean, Matthew's gospel tells us that if this wasn't enough, his wife had had a dream. And the wife of Pilate had come to him, it says in Matthew 27, 19, and she said to her husband, have nothing to do with this righteous man. She knew Jesus was righteous. She knew he was innocent. And she'd had a nightmare or a dream that had revealed this to her. And so here's Pilate with this impossible situation. He has to maintain peace in Jerusalem. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that Barabbas is guilty. So what does he do? Well, we know what he does. He washes his hands of it. Verse 15. So Pilate... Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So having scourged Jesus, which means in the other Gospels give us insight into this, he he sent Jesus off to to be whipped to the point of death, hoping that that would appease the bloodthirsty crowd, but it didn't. 
So even after being scourged, Jesus ultimately is handed over. And so here's, here's Pilate making the decision. Rather than there being riots in the street, he's going to set guilty Barabbas free and condemn innocent Jesus to crucifixion. Think about this. In a matter of hours. I mean, Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room. They were breaking bread, singing hymns, praying. They leave the security of the upper room. They cross the Kidron Valley outside the walls of the city. Jesus knows what awaits him. And as he's, as he's begging the Father, as his sweat becomes his blood, through the gates of the garden come Judas and this angry mob with clubs and swords. Judas kisses Jesus, the kiss of death, and Jesus is handed over. And he says the scriptures must be fulfilled. And he steps toward the cross, knowing exactly what he's stepping into. And so Jesus is led back across the Kidron Valley, back into the city of Jerusalem, under the cover of night, amid secrecy and lies, to the home of Caiaphas. And he has to hear accusation after accusation, lie after lie after lie. And in a sham of a trial, he's found guilty, and he's received with spit and blows and slaps and insults. And he's drug out from Caiaphas' location as he watches his one last disciple abandon him. He's led across the street to the front door of Pilate. He's flogged in the middle of all of this. Other gospels tell us he went to Annas, the, the, the former high priest, earlier in the night. And, and then other gospels tell us he also went to Herod during this whole process. But ultimately, he's standing in the presence of Pilate. The crowds are screaming, just crucify him. Jesus is silent, and he's condemned to death. And so the religious trial is over, guilty, deserving of death. The civil trial is over. Guilty, deserving of death. The prophet Isaiah 53, 12, speaks of this moment some 700 years before it took place. Here's what Isaiah writes. He poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. As Jesus hung between two thieves on a cross, he quite literally was numbered among the transgressors, though he himself knew no sin. So again, I want us to think for a moment here about the original audience who would have received these words. These men and women in Rome who come to faith in Christ didn't have a ton of knowledge of Jewish culture and custom and religious practice. They knew Jesus. They come to faith in Christ. They called themselves Christians. And the Roman government, with all of its power, was coming down. I mean, the Colosseum was a real thing. Persecution was a real thing. Nero was a tyrant. It was awful for them. And as they're reading this passage, as they're reading this account of the final moments of Jesus, Mark is encouraging the beleaguered church in Rome by letting them see Jesus in this moment. And they're reminded that they're not to endure sufferings alone. They're reminded that our God knows, knows well what it's like to endure affliction. And they're reminded that the persecution wasn't the end of the story as they flip to the end of the book. And so the persecution that they were feeling suddenly doesn't feel like an alien invasion. It's something that the scriptures tell us we should be prepared for. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his namesake. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you and tests you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so the original audience, this persecuted church, would have looked upon the persecuted Christ and they would have found strength in his steely resolve to step toward the cross. And they would have known that it doesn't end with his suffering. And we can know that today too. In the midst of the most searing of sufferings, there is resurrection hope that belongs to all of us that are in Christ. Okay. Trial of the millennium, trial of the century, trial of the universe, trial of all human ages. So what about us today? What are we to do with Jesus today as we look at this passage? What are we supposed to see? What does God intend for us to see in the gospel of Mark as we read this account? I think we're intended in part to look at all these broken, fallible, depraved, and sinful people that are all around Jesus. And for me personally, and I think this is we're intended to see this also, is we're to recognize that those people are not that much unlike these people. All of us have gone astray. All of us have failed. All of us have sinned, the scriptures say. So let's look at these people a little bit closer. Let's look at the high priest and the whole council. What word would we use to describe those religious folks? I use the word corrupt. I think I have some notes for you. The high priest and the chief priest and the Sanhedrin and this, this religious council, they, they were corrupt. Jesus was a threat to their power. I read this week that power is addicting and the addicted will hate and kill to support their habit. Say that to a politician. Then we see Jesus. He didn't fit their expectations. They had already decided what the Messiah was going to be and, and Jesus was not what they thought he was going to be and so they, they wanted a conquering emperor, not a suffering servant peasant king and so they also killed Jesus. And what else did these, these corrupt men see? Well, they, they saw a man who called them out for who they were. Jesus, in effect, held up a mirror so they could see their own corrupt hearts and they didn't like that. If you read the whole Passion Week narrative beginning in Mark 11, it was Jesus again and again confronting these, these corrupt men they couldn't fool Jesus with their spiritual veneer. And you know what? We're not that different. As I look at those men, I know that in my worst days and in our worst days, we can be corrupt too. And then we see Peter. The word I use to describe him is coward. And really, he's just the figurehead of all the disciples. They all abandoned Jesus. They were all cowards. Listen to what I read this week by Kent Hughes. I found this interesting. A good analysis of Peter's personality. And unfortunately, I identify all too much with Peter. Peter found it easy to be self-dependent. No disciple speaks as often as Peter. No disciple was reproved like Peter was. And he's the only disciple who thought he could reprove the Lord. He was impulsive. He was numero uno, always. About the only time he was second was when he lost in the foot race to the tomb with John. He had the great natural disadvantage of being the kind of person who always did it for himself somehow. When he became a follower of Christ, he naturally carried that style right into his service. He had the strength. He had the will. Whatever the cost, Peter would follow Jesus only until he didn't. And he realized in a heartbreaking moment that his strength wasn't enough. It's a hard lesson to learn. It's that whole upside-down paradigm of the gospel that strength is actually found in weakness. The Apostle Paul speaks of this eloquently when he was speaking of the thorn that God had given him in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, God, take this thorn away. Take this affliction away. And you know the, you know the passage likely. God says to, to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, okay, if the power of God is made perfect in my human weakness, what's he going to do with that? So Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm, I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Peter learned this lesson the hard way. The great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, once said, God chose me because I was weak enough. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses them. The great revivalist preacher, Vance Havner, said, The Lord had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. This is the picture here. But for Peter, on that day, in his own strength, the cost of following Jesus too closely was just too high. So he backed off. And in an act of cowardice, he abandoned Jesus. And we can do the same thing. You see, Peter, he's just like you and me. And then we got Pilate. And there's lots of words to describe Pilate. I chose the word confused. Not exclusively because it begins with a C, but partially because it begins with a C. But Pilate's confused. Just look at the questions he's asking. Are you the king of the Jews? Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? Do you want me to release you to you, the king of the Jews, he says? What shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? What evil has he done? The Gospel of John records this one-on-one conversation that Jesus and Pilate have. Jesus asks him, are you the king, or Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And And then Pilate responds to Jesus, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So you're a king. And then lastly, Pilate asks this question of Jesus in John 18, 38. What is truth? See, he was a politician. And I don't have a whole lot of... i got to be careful in my heart attitude towards politicians. I'll I'll stop there. He he was driven by his self-interest, right? In his blatant self-interest, unpacking the confusion of who Jesus was and why these men are trying to kill him, it wasn't worth his time. Like he, he didn't have time to unpack why they're trying to kill him. Nor did he want to put forth the effort. So he asks a few probing questions, but for Pilate, Jesus was this unknown figure who elicited these intense reactions. And rather than take the time to face the cost of getting to know him and understand the situation, he just washed his hands of Jesus. It's too hard. You know, I think of, you know that 75% of Jackson County considers himself post-Christian. What's that like? That's almost 200,000 people in our county have gotten to a point where they said, yeah, I heard of Jesus. Kind of confusing. Not sure that a lot of different people say a lot of different things about Jesus. I could take the time to figure out who he really is, but I got better things to do. I think I'm going to wash my hands of that. We can be the same. You see, Pilate, on our worst days, he's just like you and me. We got the crowds. They get caught up. They get caught up in something they don't really understand. They're caught up in a moment. They're caught up in emotionalism. They're caught up in the fervor. In the name of making a political point, Barabbas is the figurehead for the independence of Israel. Down with the government. They gather in a rally outside of Pilate's home. And in a moment of nationalistic emotionalism, they call for the crucifixion of the Lord. In the name of something great and beautiful and nationalistic, they turn their backs on Jesus. It's crazy. I think we too can get caught up in emotionalism and we can turn our backs on Jesus unwittingly. So these crowds are not unlike you and me. So do you see all of them? Do you see the corruption, the cowardice, the confusion in this caught up crowd who's calling for the head of Jesus? They're just like 
You and me, they're guilty of sin. They're deserving of death. Paul writes in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And so all are deserving of death. And then we get to Barabbas, who's quite literally in a prison cell, whose offenses have been numbered by the state. He's quite literally deserving of death. There's three crosses on a hillside in this moment. Very likely that center cross was reserved for Barabbas. Very likely those two men that hung on either side of Jesus were involved in the insurrection that led to the condemnation of Barabbas. Very likely. And here's Barabbas. He committed murder. He's a rebel. He's a prisoner. He's an insurrectionist, our text says. And yet, the word I use to describe him is cleared. Because at the end of our passage, in absolute mind-blowing fashion, We see guilty Barabbas cleared of all charges and set free to live. And we see innocent Jesus condemned and crucified. What an incredible moment in history. And it's a historical truth. It's a historical moment that actually happened. And it also points to a much larger spiritual truth. And and God intends for us to see this. We're intended to see the larger spiritual truth the exchange of Barabbas and Jesus is revealing to us today. I'm reminded of what the prophet Isaiah says of Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Think about Barabbas in a very punitive way. Not in necessarily a spiritual way, but in a very judicial way. In this moment, very literally, Jesus was pierced for the transgressions of Barabbas. He was crushed for the iniquities of Barabbas. Upon him was the chastisement that brought Barabbas peace. It was with the wounds of Jesus that Barabbas found freedom. Now, I don't know if Barabbas ever turned his heart to Jesus spiritually, but in a very real physical sense, he was set free that day. Guilty, guilty Barabbas set free to walk. Innocent Jesus condemned to death. This is a divinely inspired historical event that conveys to us a much larger spiritual truth. We cannot miss this. And again, we see Jesus stepping towards the cross in perfect obedience. So, let me wrap this up. Let's imagine that day. Let's imagine that we are Barabbas. Because in a sense, we all are. We are cowardice and confused. We are corrupt. We are caught up. All those words I used to describe the sinfulness of all these sinful folks that surrounded innocent Jesus. Barabbas is sort of the figure of that. So let's imagine that we're Barabbas and we're in a jail cell. And let's imagine that we know today is the day that I have been found guilty of insurrection and murder, and today is the day that I'm going to be nailed to a cross and I'm going to be crucified for my crimes. Okay, so you're sitting in your cell. It's early morning on a Friday. And you can hear there's clamoring taking place outside. You hear the the voices of people, the murmurs of people. You can sense there's a growing crowd. And maybe you hope and believe that your friends are going to show up to call for your release, but you don't know and you're sitting in your jail cell, it's a somber moment, it's a terrifying moment, and all of a sudden you hear the crowd getting livelier and livelier and louder and louder, and pretty soon you begin to hear a whole entire crowd outside shouting in unison, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And your Barabbas sitting in your jail cell, what are you thinking in that moment? You hear the jail... The prison doors open, you hear these soldiers coming down the hallway to where you're being held, maybe in shackles, maybe behind bars. 
You hear the jingling of keys. You hear the clattering of armor. You hear the creaking of the door as the prison cell opens. You're prepared to die. This is your final walk. This is the walk of death. And they open the door and they say, you're free to go. What are you talking about? I'm free to go. You're free to go. What do you mean I'm free to go? Well, a man, another man is going to hang in your place. He's going to take your place on that cross. You've been cleared of all wrongdoing. You're being set free. You're free to go. On a very spiritual level, this is what's happened to all of us who have come to faith in Christ. We are Barabbas. Jesus takes our place on the cross. The sins that you and I were born into and that we live in, they were placed upon Jesus as he died in our place. He went to the cross and he died. An innocent sufferer died in our place. And he does so that you and I may be set free. And this is the free gift that God offers us through Jesus Christ. It's the free gift of grace. The scriptures are so loaded with beautiful depictions of the grace of Christ and what it offers us. Yes, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, Paul writes in Romans 6. Jesus dies, and the one he dies in the place of gets freedom and life. In the most significant trial in history. We're not watching this on a screen. We are the ones who've been declared innocent. We are the ones who've been given life. We are the ones who've been set free. And so as we understand this amazing spiritual truth, as we look at Christ dying in the place of sinful man, as we see him becoming sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, as we look at all of this taking place in the pages of scriptures, what, uh, what ought our response be? How, how ought you and I respond to this today? Well, I think there's two responses. One response is for those of you who are here today who've never trusted in Jesus Christ. You've never realized that he died in your place. He paid the, the death penalty your sin deserves, that you might have life and freedom. So the response today is to trust him, to trust in this Jesus and what he has done for you in dying in your place on the cross. Language of the scriptures is often believe and receive. I like how John puts it in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Speaking about Jesus, John says, to all who did receive him, receive Jesus who believed in his name, who believed that what he had done on their behalf set them free. To all who did receive him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So for some of us today, the response to this teaching is to believe in the Lord Jesus, to believe that he bore your sins when he went to the cross, to receive the free gift of salvation that he offers through grace, to believe that he overcame sin and he overcame death and he's alive today and he's calling you to himself. So for some of you today, that's the only right response. Now as I look out of here, I know a lot of you. Look in a lot of your face. I know, I know your confessions of faith. I've prayed with many of you. I know you love Jesus. I know you're trying to figure out how to walk in obedience to him. So what do we do with this text today? How do we respond to this preaching today? I think we fall on our knees in awe. I think we fall on our knees in awe. Gratitude spills out of our heart. Worship flows from our lips. We breathe in his grace. We breathe out his praise. That's what we do. The greatest gift ever given. The greatest act of selfless love ever. This is your salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Jesus died in your place, and he died in my place that we may live and be free. Amen? Pray with me. Father, so thankful for this passage. So thankful that we can peer upon the trial of Jesus God. And I just see, I see him with his steely resolve, who, who for the joy set before him endured the horrors of the cross. 
who didn't pass up the cup of suffering, but rose up in the garden, stepped toward the cross. And upon him, upon the shoulders of Jesus, our transgressions were placed. He was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and we have been healed by his wounds. And so, God, I pray for those of us here today who know you, and we're here to worship and know you more. God, would you, would you help us fall to our knees literally and figuratively in awe, reverent awe, with gratitude spilling out of our hearts for you and for what you've done for us, God. Refresh us, renew us, enliven our faith, draw us back to you in obedient worship. And God, I'm mindful today of those men and women here who've never come to a point in their lives where they have just confessed with their mouth that Jesus, you are Lord and believed in their heart that God, you raised him from the dead. And so God, I pray for those men and women here right now, God, in this very moment, that in their heart of hearts, you read the language of our hearts, they would simply open up their hearts and in a confession of faith, they would say, I need you, Jesus. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for bearing the death penalty my sin deserves. Thank you for offering me salvation. I confess with my mouth, Jesus, that you are Lord. And I believe in my heart, God, that you've raised him from the dead. Save me. Fill me with your spirit. Make me the man or the woman you want me to be for your glory. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.